Okay, if you look at your notes, um, I, I try to, uh, so that we don't have to do like reviews just because if we start reviewing things, you never make any progress. So we're dealing with the four main claims that individuals who are trying, basically there's a group of individuals who their specific goal is to try to find ways to undermine Christianity. And the ones that I think that are the most effective at that um, are those who at one time claimed to be believers and are individuals who um, came from various schools that we would consider to be very, very solid schools. So that means the individual is very familiar with our language. He, they're very familiar with the way that we approach these topics. Um, I, I don't think, and you hear me say this a lot, I don't think the arguments that they make hold any water, but they're skilled at being able to cause individuals to begin to have doubts about things. And we'll see more of that once we get through dealing with this first issue. But again, as I mentioned before, uh, what we call the problem of evil or the problem of pain, uh, many non-believers think that if they just raise the issue, they've already, run, they've already won the argument because there's no answer to it. And the argument goes, there's, there's several ways it's presented. The main thing is that is this. Um, because there's so much evil in the world, then God cannot be good. Because there's so much evil in the world, and God cannot be good, if God exists, then not only is he not good, he's, also, uh, he's not powerful. Because if he was a good God, then he would stop the evil. So either he's not powerful, or he's not good, and then their conclusion is, therefore, there's no God. Um, and like I said, many individuals believe that by just raising that issue, uh, they think they have disproved God, which they haven't. So we've covered the first couple of claims uh, already. So on your notes then, on page two, uh, why is that not numbered? Oh, it is. Page two, uh, we're, we're starting with claim number three. All right, so again, what these claims are is that the answers that Christians have given are inadequate or are wrong. So the first claim is, is they will say that it is a contradiction to say that God is sovereign and God is good in view of all the evil in the world. Now, they, don't, they, they never prove how that's true, but they just basically say, they just make the claim that um, because of all the evil, God can't be sovereign and he can't be good. Claim number two, and we talked about that in detail, so we're not going to go through it again. Claim number two is the Bible contains many different answers to the problem of why there is suffering in the world. And we covered the five major ones last week. And what they will say, this group, uh, whoever that may be, they say that the answers contradict one another. And we saw the answers do not contradict each other um, at all. So that's just a, a baseless claim. Normally, when these statements are made, the individual who's like basically giving a lecture isn't giving anyone an opportunity to answer. They're just making the statements. And one of the uh, ways that they're able to undermine people's confidence in the Bible or in Christianity is the one who's giving the talk usually is a PhD. And so sometimes the attitude is, because I have a PhD, you have no right to question what I say. And because I have a PhD, that automatically means everything I say is true. 
That's not, but it's the attitude. And so you have, you know, 18, 19, 20-year-old people sitting in, in the audience. And if they're not familiar with some of these things, they are apt to actually fall into that trap and think, wow, this guy is so smart. And my whole life I've been brought up believing such and such, and it's not true. Uh, so it's important for these things to be brought up in church, actually, and to be dealt with. Um, and important for people to try to, uh, for themselves, try to figure out what the answers may be or look to see what the answers are because there are answers. So then the third claim, which is where we begin tonight, is that the Bible's explanation for suffering and evil are not satisfying. So basically they're saying, okay, so you have five main arguments or five main points or explanations that the Bible gives for evil. Well, I don't like them. They don't satisfy uh, my question. So therefore, they're, they're moot. They don't count. Is kind of the idea. So again, number one, uh, the ultimate test for the truthiness of the Bible is not based on whether or not we like the answer. All right? that's, 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 that should be, it's simple, but again, people don't always think about it. Remember that when it comes to debating any issue, and we're, specific, we're specifically dealing now with debating either the Bible the credibility of the Bible, the truthfulness of Christianity, etc. If you're not used to debating, it can be very difficult to rapidly think on your feet and actually to think of a maybe an even, even a logical or intelligent response to what you're hearing because you're being caught off guard. And so as a result of that, you remain quiet and sometimes that can be very detrimental. Um, remember that most of the time, on, on any side of the issue, even if you hear certain Christians uh, who like to do debates, they usually are really very good, not just because of the information they have, but because they're used to doing that. You know, when you do that a lot, you get better at it. Um, there's a few individuals that I've heard um, I would never want to debate uh, just because they're super intelligent and, and they're incredibly knowledgeable. Uh, if you've ever read anything by James White, uh, he has done lots of debates. He doesn't do too many, because I don't think anybody wants to debate him. Uh, but the first time I heard him do a debate, he was debating a, a Catholic, uh, I think it was a Jesuit priest, and they were, they were dealing with the assertion that, that if a person is Catholic and believes the doctrines of the Catholic Church, then they, they cannot be saved. Um, they cannot be a real Christian. And so they were going back and forth on this issue and so James White made a specific point about the Catholic Church, and the Jesuit said, well, that's not true. We don't teach that. Then James White said, oh, yes, you do. And he said, and then he, then he mentioned a book. And it's some book, you know, that every, every denomination has, I guess you'd say, a certain number of books that they consider to be very well written, very well argued, that also establishes what their main beliefs are, that kind of thing. And so he named some Catholic volume I had never heard of. Not that I know many of them, but I'd never heard of it. And uh, he was doing this really off the top of his head because he didn't know what this guy was going to say at that point of the debate. And he said, yeah, you do. In this book, and he named the book, and he said, on page 245, if you look halfway down the page, in the fourth paragraph, it says, and he quoted it. <laughs> and the guy says, uh, I'll have to check that. And James West says, go ahead. I just gave it to you verbatim. And I'm thinking, whoo! <laughs> uh, we'll not debate James White, but that doesn't matter. I agree with him on stuff anyway. But um, so we have to realize that sometimes an individual, maybe often, 
a person could be at a disadvantage. And that could even be us. We can be at a disadvantage. doesn't mean that we failed at anything. It's just that it catches us off guard. Maybe we're not used to having to think within a certain framework with the heat of the moment. And that doesn't mean there are no answers. Because that's sometimes the error people fall into, is they think, well, the reason why I really couldn't think of anything is because there is no response. And there is. And here it's actually really, really very simple. Just because someone doesn't like an answer doesn't mean it's not true. It could be true. Um, yeah, I mean, we see that when it comes to elections or whatever. We may not like who got voted in, but if they got voted in, just because I don't like it doesn't mean it didn't really happen. Right? It happened. So that's how we go. Um, then secondly, um, many times people will wrongly frame or cast biblical explanations as, as absolutes that must apply to every situation. So the example would be this. One of the five reasons that the Bible gives as to why there is suffering in the world and why there is evil is, that, is because God will use it as punishment because of an individual sin. And that's true. But that doesn't mean that every single time, every single person who's suffering is suffering because of some sin in their life. It doesn't mean that. But what will happen is, is the individual who's doing the debate will misrepresent that truth. And they'll say, so are you telling me that the lady who lives next door to me, and they go through all these good things they do, and she's suffering, you're telling me that it's because of her sin? Because I know another guy down the street who's a drunk, who beats his wife, he's been arrested 33 times, and, um, you know, on and on and on, and there's nothing wrong in his life. He, he has a nice house, he has nice cars, he has money, and why is God not punishing him? So you're sitting listening to this, you start thinking, well, I mean, yeah, I don't, you, you, the person's been successful in making you only think within their, their, with the parameters they've set. So they've narrowly set the parameters on purpose, and again, that's a ploy. And so you can't think out of the parameter they set, because you're not used to that, and you, and you can't think of an answer as to why is it that way. Well, just, that's where sometimes it can be helpful to take a big breath, back up a little bit, and say, wait a minute. But not all suffering is because of that. There's all kinds of reasons why we suffer. Uh, and so it could be that this individual that you know that's very kind is suffering because God is going to use that individual as an example to others to encourage them that you're able to get through difficult times. It may have nothing to do with sin in their life. Nothing at all. Um, so uh, that's why we want, you know, the, the more familiar we are, again, we are with not only the tactics, but with some of the responses, um, then the better that we'll be. The main thing I think is this, especially if we have kids, is we want to teach our kids, even though we may teach them these truths, they may not remember everything, obviously, when they go to, if they go to college and they encounter a professor that is going to be very antagonistic towards Christianity. It's actually really a very common thing. I've heard from lots of kids who go to school, and they'll be in all kinds of classes, and the professor will just suddenly say on the very first day, talk about how it's that those who believe in Christianity are stupid because there's no evidence for it, blah, 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 blah. So he doesn't want anyone bringing up God or prayer in their classroom, but they move on. And... You know, the, some of the kids are like blown away by that, and it happen, you know, so their faith is attacked a lot. And sometimes that's enough to get them to begin to wonder, to doubt, whatever. So the idea is then is that we may not, our, our children may not remember all the details or all of the responses that there may be out there to those kinds of statements. 
But if we've exposed them to these kinds of things, at least they should know this. I don't know what the answer is, but I know there's answers to that that make that look foolish. And so, and they'd be inclined to look it up. If they at least know that, then they're going to be okay. That's really important, uh, that aspect of it. So we want our kids and our grandkids and those that are new in the faith to understand that attacks on the faith are actually very common. People will make all kinds of statements, and they will misrepresent what Christianity is a great deal to, in a sense, prove their point. That's not how you win arguments. You know, it's a, again, it's a ploy, it's manipulative, but people do that on all kinds of issues. You know, politicians do it all the time about all kinds of things. Um, so when it comes to uh, Christianity, in one sense, even more so, um, uh, individuals do that because of whatever acts they have to grind against Christianity. So again, the Bible does not insist, for example, that punishment is the only reason why people suffer. And, uh, and as a result of that, then their, their argument for this is kind of neat. So let me, uh, let me read this to you. This is a, uh, uh, a comment from a book that I was reading. And um, this is what it says. The problem with this view, which again, the Bible's explanation for suffering and evil are not satisfying. The problem with this view is not only that it is scandalous and outrageous, but also that it creates both false security and false guilt. If punishment comes because of sin, and I'm not suffering one bit, does that make me righteous? Am I? Am I more righteous than my next door neighbor who has lost his job or whose child was killed in an accident or whose wife was brutally raped and murdered? On the other hand, if I am undergoing intense suffering, is it really because God is punishing me? Am I really to blame when my child is born with a defect, when the economy takes a nosedive and I can no longer put food on the table, when I get cancer? You see, only by disconnecting this view from the multifaceted biblical explanation of suffering can one make this view look silly. The Bible does not insist that punishment is the only reason people suffer. So there's a couple references I have in your notes. So turn to John chapter 9. Uh, I'm going to read through both of those. Uh, and these are examples uh, where Jesus is, uh, where there's someone who's suffering. And we're going to be given an explanation as to why this is going on. So we're going to read John 9. And then after that, we'll go to John chapter 5. So in John chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. It says, Now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So let me stop there. It was a very common teaching uh, in Israel during that time that when it comes to a Jewish family, that if something like that takes place, it's always because someone sinned and God's punishing them. When they asked the question, who sinned, this man or his parents? Remember, it says this man was born blind. So their belief was either A, the parents had done something to offend God, and so his punishment on them was they would have a child who was born blind. They also believed that um, a baby could sin in the womb. Now, we don't, the Bible doesn't say anything about that, and we don't believe that. We believe we're born sinners, but we don't believe that a baby commits acts of sin in the womb. But they believe that would be possible. So the example would be this. Uh, you know, a woman is, you know, sometimes, you know, the, the, the woman, the baby's moving, and so she'll have her sister or her husband, you know, put your hand on my stomach, you can feel the baby moving, and everyone gets kind of excited about that. And every now and then, there may be a kick 
at least we call it a kick, and it, it hurts. And so they would teach that there are times that when a baby does that, it's because they're mad or angry and they, hurt, they did it on purpose to hurt the mother. Therefore, that was a sin. And so that's why the baby was born blind. So that's their, in their thinking, that's the possibility. So Jesus answers the question. And what does he say? He says, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. So Jesus makes it clear. This, this, this man, when he says this man didn't sin, he's not saying he's sinless. What he's just simply saying is, his being born blind has got nothing to do with his sin. It's got nothing to do with his parents sinning. It only has to do with one thing. At this moment in time, the will of the, you know, God's glory is going to be revealed because this man was born blind. And so he says in verse 4, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the, I am the, light of the world. Now, just so you know, kind of an extra side note. Some of you know this because you've heard me talk about this before. Uh, but there were, even though Jesus did a lot of miracles, there were was, there was certain miracles that Jesus did that the Jewish people had been taught only the Messiah could do. So if an individual did those miracles, that would be definite proof that that person was the Messiah. Remember, they were looking for a Messiah to come. Some believed that the Messiah would be a Pharisee. Some believed that when the Messiah would come, he would deliver them from Rome. Uh, so, there was, so there are many groups looking for the coming of the Messiah. So uh, in, their, in the way that they would sometimes develop some of their um, doctrine is it would be kind of a question and answer kind of thing. And so it would begin like this. So the question would be, um, how will we know who the Messiah is when he comes? The answer is, we will know who the Messiah is because when the Messiah comes, he will do many miracles. Then the response is, but there are many men who do miracles. How will we know which one is the Messiah? And so the answer is to that is the Messiah will do miracles that no one has ever done in Israel. And so then the response to that is, and what miracles would they be? And then they said there are three. Uh, one is the healing of a leper. The other is the uh, heal, uh, casting out of a demon from someone who is uh, unable to speak. And thirdly, it's the uh, healing of a man who's born blind. And the reason why they emphasize born blind is, you know, we've heard these stories. It's happened where somebody is at work, you know, they fall off a ladder, hit their head, they go blind. And then years go by, and they're walking on the road, and they trip and fall and hit their head, and now they can see. I mean, it happens. All right? Not very often, but it happens. All right? So th for them... If a person's born blind, then they would say that's a true miracle in every sense. The only person you can credit with doing that miracle is God. And so when the Messiah comes, he will do that. So that's why then when Jesus says, uh, so that uh, the works of God or the glory of God would be revealed, he means that really in the strongest sense. Jesus was under no obligation to do those miracles because the Old Testament didn't prophesy he would do those specific ones. But he did those. He did, in fact, he did each of those twice. Uh, so that just kind of adds, again, more evidence that when the Jews were screaming for him to be crucified, it's never an issue where, well, they didn't quite have enough evidence he was the Messiah. They all knew who he was. It was clear. They had been taught for years that only the Messiah would do certain things, and Jesus did all that stuff. Um, so there was no, uh, no one was innocent you know, in, in, uh, with the crucifixion of Jesus. But if you go back to John 5 now, 
John 5, beginning in verse 1. It says, After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool, which is called in Hebrew, uh, Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first, after the stirring of the water, was made well of whatever disease he had. Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity thirty-eight years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he already had been in that condition a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be made well? The sick man answered, Sir, I have no man that put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said, Take up, rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked, and that day was the Sabbath. The Jews therefore said to him who was, who was cured, It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. He answered, He who made me well said to me, Take up your bed and walk. Now, just so you know, he's not carrying a mattress when this is going on. It's, it's more of a mat. But when the Jews taught about the Sabbath day, uh, you'll hear sometimes Jesus will, will talk about, he'll use this phrase. He says, you've heard, you, you've heard it said, but I say. And oftentimes when he, when he says, you've heard it said, he's referring to the interpretation of the Mosaic law or the tradition of the elders. The tradition of the elders is also in a book of writing called the Mishnah. And uh, the Mishnah was an ongoing work, even at that time, where they were continuing to build what they considered to be a, a wall or a fence of protection around the Mosaic Law. And again, the idea with that is that it's always very detrimental to break the Law of Moses, so you build a fence around that of protection for the Jewish man, average Jewish man and woman. And that's made up of all these laws. So if they break those laws, it's bad, but it's good because it stops them in their tracks because they were on their way to breaking the law of Moses, but because they broke this law and they are aware of it and they feel guilty and, and they stop, then they've changed course. We've protected them from breaking the law of Moses. So the law of Moses, there are 613 commands. That's how many are in the Old Testament, 613. So when it came to the, law, the fence laws or the Mishnah or the tradition of the elders, whatever you want to call it, there was thousands, thousands of laws. And so on the, when it comes to the Sabbath day, where the Lord says, uh, keep the Sabbath day holy, that's about it. Don't work, keep it holy. They added 1,500 laws, and they became very specific. So uh, in that, you were, on the Sabbath day, you were not allowed to carry anything. Because if you're carrying something, it's like a beast of burden, and you're working. So even though he was carrying his mat, they said, hey, you're breaking the Sabbath law. You're breaking the law of the Sabbath. What they're trying to do there is they're trying to connect that to Jesus. That Jesus was promoting breaking Sabbath law. So they accuse this man of doing this. And of course he says, well, uh, he said, um, the man who made me well said, take up your bed and walk. Now I would imagine that him being there for 38 years, he, you know, it's not like this is a major metropolis. They would have known that this guy had been lame for a long time. But anyway, so instead of, instead of them being excited for him, they say, well, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn and a multitude being in that place. 
Afterward, Jesus saw him in the temple and said, See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. Now, we might be able to assume that the man was lame because of some sin in his life. But Jesus does make it very clear that he should be so grateful that he's been made well that he doesn't go out and sin because something worse may come upon him. So that really does exist. Sometimes Christians will think that the belief that something bad will happen to you if you sin is, is superstition. It's not superstition. Now, it doesn't mean that we have to walk around in fear that every time I do something wrong, God's going to zap me. Okay? You don't have to, you don't have to, we, don't, we don't have to think that way or be afraid of that. God does want us to take sin very seriously. He does want us to pursue holiness. He wants that. Uh, there is nothing in the Bible that says God is following you around with a dark cloud and he's going to zap you with a lightning bolt the moment you do something wrong. Uh, in fact, oftentimes God will let us do wrong things and also allow us to reap what we sow. And that will be the punishment and the lesson and all the rest. Uh, but there is very much so this idea that is still true. And it's true of the believer. All right? Not just non-believers. That something bad or worse may come upon you if you go out willy-nilly and sin on purpose. So we don't want to, we don't want to deny that. But we know the difference is, is that when it comes to God punishing the believer, we're being punished by a loving father. Remember, we are related to him. He's adopted us into his family. So this is not some guy who's out just to make people suffer. You know, God's discipline really of us is always to be corrective. He's always trying to correct our behavior. And that's for our benefit. In the same way that we would say that a good parent, when they punish their children, they really are, actually, the better word is they're disciplining them. And the goal of that is not just to beat them or to make them hurt or to make them cry or whatever the case may happen to be or suffer. It's to be corrective. And, and so we sometimes we will alter what we do depending on the, our child, their discipline, their, their, their personality, and then also their age as far as what we do because the goal is to help them to what? Wake up and see they're wrong and change course. That's, that's what we're trying to do. And that's what God does. So we don't follow our kids around holding a belt or a rod or whatever and, and just say, I can't wait till you mess up because I'm going to let you have it. All right? We arrest people for doing that kind of thing. But the idea is, is that, um, the, so, the, so a, a, even, even children who grow up with a strict parent, because um, sometimes we, you know, we don't always use the best words. We may have a parent who's actually really mean and cruel and we'll say, oh yeah, my parents were strict. No, your parents are mean and cruel. That's what they are. But you can grow up with a strict parent and know that your parents love you. And there's a consistency that's there. So I would say that when I was growing up, my dad was very strict. And I, and I did. I, get a, I got a lot of beatings when I was young. <laughs> and I really tried hard to figure out one time I didn't deserve it. And I just can't come up with one. <laughs> you know, so I deserve it. But I never lived in fear of my dad. I never, I did, when I was home, when my dad came home from work, I didn't just, oh, dad's home. Unless I had done something wrong. Then I was, you know, I didn't want dad to find out. But, so I didn't live in fear. So remember, for the non-believer, in their mind, you know, because they're, they're trying to change our view of God, and maybe they have a view of God or image of God that's like this, that when you, when you associate punishment with sin, that God is a mean ogre who just wants to get you. And that, that's, not, that's not God. 
That's, you read the scriptures, that's not how he's described. Do, is he a wrathful God? Absolutely. But it's always warranted. He's always just. Uh, and he's also, it's always mixed with his kindness and love and grace. It's always that way. Um, and so, uh, again, the non-believer doesn't like that truth, but it's, it's the truth. And uh, it's one that we don't really have to be ashamed of. Um, and we don't need to allow them to kind of alter or set the parameters to how we understand God. We want to make sure that our understanding of God does come from uh, what the scriptures teach. Thirdly, in dealing with the third claim, which again is that the Bible is, the Bible's explanations for suffering and evil are not satisfying. The third thing is, is that suffering and evil are a mystery, uh, no matter what perspective one adopts. They don't like that, right? Remember, that, remember we said there's five reasons given in Scripture as to why God permits evil or uses evil, and that was one of them. There are times that we don't know, right? So, for example, um, I think everybody would agree that war is horrible, it's immoral, and lots of bad things happen, and innocent people die. So, right now, we all know that Russia has invaded Ukraine. Even though there's all these political and global things that are going on, and there may be a lot of I guess, reasons as to how this whole thing has come about, we would still say that even with all of that, uh, that Russia is in the wrong. So why is a loving God allowing that to take place? I don't know. I know that God's not unjust. I know that for a fact. Um, I know that God has his reasons. And I know that I'm not privileged, and I don't know of anyone who's privileged to be let in on as to what the reason is. All I know is that God can be trusted because he's proven himself through the years. So it's a mystery. And again, for the non-believer, they want to see that as a major weakness. I guess the assumption is because they're a human being, they deserve to know. That's a big assumption to make when we're talking about God. Remember again, God is not like Superman, that he's just a highly evolved human being that's flawed and sinful. He is sinless. He is perfect. He's whole, you know, the word holy is a word that describes all of his attributes. His love is holy. His justice is holy. His kindness is holy. His wrath, all of it's holy. And it would it's, be very difficult for us to fully comprehend what that really means. We kind of have an idea, but to really grasp that uh, is hard because we are not holy. Uh, you know, we're actually very accustomed to sin and all the rest. So the thing is, is that we, we clearly do not know why, but because God is trustworthy, we have no problem with that, but the world doesn't like that. So what they try to do then is the idea behind this um, uh, response is that they will criticize or mock Christianity when we say that suffering and evil are times of mystery. They will say that what we're actually saying is there is no answer. We're not saying that, we're just saying that we don't know. Then they will turn around and they will offer no alternative explanation of their own other than to say, all that is here is all that we have. In other words, if you were to say to them, you know, if they say, well, when you say that, that, you don't, that it's a mystery, you don't, know the, you, you don't know why, you just don't have an answer. So you can always say, well, then what is your explanation for evil and suffering? I would like to hear it. And of course, usually the best they can come up with is, hey, that's just how it is. Oh, that's so helpful. That gives me so much comfort when I hear you say that. I mean, that's not an answer, right? They've just kind of said the same thing we've said in a sense, except what we know is that there is an all-powerful, all-loving God, and these things aren't happening outside of his control, 
And I know there are reasons, reasons why this is happening. I know that. I just don't know what they are. There's someone I can trust in this. They don't have any of that. To them, all of it is just senseless. Um, and to me, they're in a worse, a worse position. So the truth of the matter is that suffering and evil are a mystery, no matter what perspective one adopts. Uh, there's a guy that lives in the UK. His name is Alistair McGrath. Uh, he's, he's, I think he's written a few books on apologetics. He's usually pretty good. Uh, and he says this. He says, ultimately, this is a question that nobody, whether secular or religious, can answer totally. The real issue is who can offer the most satisfying answer, which stands up to critical reflection, despite leaving some questions unanswered. Perhaps because, given our human limitations, they are ultimately unanswerable. A willingness to live with irresolvable questions is a mark of intellectual maturity, not a matter of logical nonsense, as some unwisely regard it. So, not only with this issue, there are other things that go on, whether it's in science, history, politics, psychology, sociology, etc., where there are issues that, that are unanswerable. For us to recognize that there may not be answers to those things doesn't mean that an individual is stupid or just worthless or what have you. Again, what he's just saying is, hey, it's, if we're going to be intellectually mature and honest, we will admit those things. Um, and you sometimes you'll hear, uh, sometimes when scientists are being asked questions about certain things, they will tell you that there are certain things they don't understand. Uh, even if you talk to, you know, we've had the whole big thing with COVID and all the stuff that's going on. You know, there are, there's more than one virologist in the world. There's tons of them. And there's, some, there's many that are what we would call world-class uh, and world-class uh, recognized virologists, male and female. And they would tell you, even with all the knowledge they have about viruses, et cetera, there's still a bunch they don't know, tons of things they don't know. And normally those individuals, in fact, I think always, they will admit to what they don't know. They don't pretend. They don't just make stuff up. Uh, about viruses or whatever so that no one thinks they're ever wrong. They just say, yeah, there's stuff we don't know. We're still trying to discover it. And so that's all that he's pointing out here. So again, the idea with that is that because there are other areas of life that we know that many brilliant individuals don't know the answers to, to not know the answer to something doesn't mean there is no answer. What the virologists will tell you is we just don't know yet. We're trying to discover these things. So it's just showing you that this is not an unusual thing. That's important because, again, it goes back to how an individual may, may be made to feel psychologically. And that is what, what the goal is, is to make you feel that because you can't come up with an answer, there is no answer. No one has an answer. So therefore, your position is flawed, which then means that your belief in God makes no sense. So you should be on my side, which is we don't believe in God. That's kind, of, that's kind of what they're doing. And individuals sometimes fall for that, but if you just kind of step back and think about it, well, wait a minute now, there's a lot of things in life that are like that. So why, is, why would this be unique? That somehow my position means it's foolish, because it's not foolish. Fourthly with this, many fail to recognize the powerful impact the Christian doctrine of the incarnation has on the discussion of evil and suffering. The New Testament teaches that God entered the world and suffered alongside and even on behalf of his people. So one of the things that's very unique about Christianity, there's several things that are, but one of the things, in, in, in for those individuals who take the problem of suffering and evil seriously, remember there are those who are just using that argument maybe to, to get out of having to think about God or, you know, for whatever. But there are individuals 
who do struggle with this, who, are, who take all that really very seriously. And so uh, if, you're, if you're speaking to an individual who is taking these things seriously, uh, then the door is usually open to get into this aspect of it, and that's this. When it comes to all of the major religions, and we could say this for all religions, but there's so many, no one person has said to all of them, but we look at all the major religions, and we ask, whatever they think about God, the God they believe in, what has their God done when it comes to suffering and evil? Okay, so if you're talking to a Muslim, and when it comes to suffering evil, uh, what they believe, God doesn't do anything. God's got nothing to do with it. In fact, they even teach in their theology that if God wants to lie, he can lie. I mean, there's all kind of stuff. All right, but what you don't have is this. What you don't have is a God who loves humans so much that he entered into the suffering. He willingly entered into suffering with his people and on behalf. And that's what we teach about Jesus, right? Jesus came in the form of a man. We know that, that uh, Jesus was 100% human. So we know that when he was fasting, there were times he experienced hunger. Like we experienced hunger. He experienced fatigue, like we experienced fatigue. He experienced great sadness, like we experienced sadness. All those things he experienced. When he was taken to the cross, the beatings he had before, and then all of the atrocities that take place during crucifixion, he truly experienced all those things. So the Bible says he, he can identify with us. He understands not just, you know, he understands the pain and suffering that we experience. And then, of course, the, the ultimate aspect of that is that he also then endured a lot of that for our benefit. So the ultimate pain and suffering that we all face, we will not have to face it. You know, this eternal separation from God and the punishment for our sin, we will not have to face that because he took that on our behalf. So there's no other religion where God has done that for people. There's nothing. It's all perform, do well, maybe you'll make it. In fact, if you talk to a, a Muslim who's fairly serious about their faith, um, the best they can hope for is when they die is that perhaps God will forgive them. There's no guarantee. Absolutely zero. Uh, there was a conversation that John MacArthur had once on an airplane with a, with a, uh, a very wealthy sheikh who was a Muslim. And uh, the conversation that I thought was, it's actually kind of humorous uh, because this guy didn't know much of anything about Christianity at all. Very little about Americans. And um, so as he and John were discussing uh, life, almost every single serious Muslim is always willing to talk about religion. In America, people get all upset when you want to talk about religion. But a good Muslim, they love that. You know, because to them, religion is the most important thing in life, just like it is for a Christian. Um, and so they were discussing that. And so when John told this man he was a pastor, this guy was really excited. And he was asking all kinds of questions about Americans and about the Bible and whatever. And so then um, um, John, at, during, the course of, during the course of the conversation, John MacArthur said to this man, he said, well, I, I spoke to God this morning and kind of went on. And the guy said, whoa, you, you spoke to God? Today? He said, yes, I speak to God every day. And he goes, every day? You speak to the God? And he said, yes. He said, we call it prayer. He says, all Christians do that. 
I have never heard of, I mean, he was just blown away by this because, you know, in Islam, you don't talk to God. When they pray, they're not praying like how we pray. They are just chanting a memorized prayer. You know, the five times they pray a day, they're, it's, it's, they're just going through the exact same thing every day. That's what they're doing. That's what that is. So this idea of bringing your burdens to God and your problems, none of, that, none of that's going on. Um, you know, it's just all very ritualistic. So then as John, so the guy was just really intrigued after that. So then uh, after a while, John said uh, to him, he said, uh, um, do you believe that, um, that as human beings we sin? <laughs> the guy said, oh, yes, I sin. In fact, I'm on my way to sin now. <laughs> I guess he had some, he's married, he had some girlfriend in L.A. But anyway, you know, he was just very open about it, you know. And so then John said, well, do you believe that you could be forgiven for your sin? And it is what he said. Well, I hope the day that I die, that I die, that maybe, perhaps, Allah will be in a good mood and I will be forgiven. But we cannot know. And that was the best he could hope for. And John said, are you satisfied with that? And the guy said, well, not really, but what can I do? And so that's when John said, well, just so you know, when I speak to God, when he speaks to me, he said, oh, God speaks to you. He said, yes, every day. And the guy was just like, every day? How... How does the God, you know, and he, so he said, well, it's the Bible. And he kind of he made through all those explanations. And he said, God has told us that we can know, we can have our sins forgiven. And the guy was, well, how do you know? And so he explained the whole gospel uh, to him. The guy didn't get saved at that moment. John did say that later on he was at some mall and he saw him. And uh, the, the, the sheik went over and he, he said, oh, oh, my Christian preacher friend, come, come. <laughs> you know, and, and he says, I think a great deal about what you tell me. He says, <laughs> But just so you know, I'm still sinning. <laughs> it was kind of, kind of humorous about how he looked at it. But the idea is, again, is that within all the major religions, when you study them, you don't have God coming into and sharing in the, in the suffering that we experience and then also suffering on our behalf. So really, the, one of the best answers to, to the issue of suffering uh, is the God that we believe in has entered into it and has suffered for us. So it's not like he's not separate from this. He's very intimately connected uh, to what we're going through. Uh, so let me read to you from Philippians chapter 2, beginning verse 5. It says, let this mind, or that would be let this attitude, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And then in Hebrews 4, beginning verse 14, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. It is a very long technical conversation in trying to figure out when Jesus was tempted by sin, was he truly tempted? Because that leads to the question, could Jesus have truly sinned? And that's, you know, books of 500 pages long have been written trying to answer that. Could he have really sinned? We know he, as a man, he had a choice, and we, we understand all those things, but he's also son of God. Son of God is perfect. He can't sin. And so there's all that stuff. All I know is this, is that the temptations were real. 
it, the Bible says that he was tempted like we are. So the temptation is real. Whether or not it was appealing to him in that way, I would say no, because James makes it clear that when you and I are tempted by sin, the temptation draws us strength because we're drawn away by what? Our own hearts. His heart was pure. So the temptations, though they're real, the offering that, that Satan made to him was real, it's not going to draw him to those things because his heart was pure. Satan knows us, and so uh, the example would be this. If someone offered me 25 pounds of pure cocaine, there's no, the temptation is real in one sense, but it's not real. I'm not, I, don't, I don't have a desire for that, so there's nothing there. Now, if someone said, hey, if you drive me to Mobile, Alabama, I'll pay you $25,000. Just don't ask any questions. Hmm. Twenty-five thousand. I don't know about you, but that's a lot of money. Don't ask any questions, so I don't really know what's going on. I mean, it could be evil, but maybe not. You know, you start going through all of that. Now, I'm not saying I would do it, but I would think about it. I was like, oh man. You know, it's just. Of course, you know, the old adage, if something sounds too good to be true, it usually is. Uh, but anyway, uh, so Jesus then was tempted, but he's never going to be drawn away or enticed because his heart is pure. And so the bottom line is, is he then, he does understand. But remember that, that God's understanding of our sin, this is what we have to be careful of, because sometimes people, they, they can over-psychologize Jesus in this way. They'll say, well... Because Jesus was a human like we are, and he understands what it's like to be tempted, then he'll understand why it was so hard for me to resist. Okay, no, no. Uh, he understands the real strength of it, but remember, Jesus is also the author of the Bible. And the Bible says that as a Christian, that when I sin, I'm always sinning on purpose. Right? That that's all there is to it. I'm fully responsible for my sin. So his understanding of me, then I can't twist that somehow then think that somehow that then means that 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 equates to him overlooking my sin that that's not what that says now god might just because again god handles us differently in different things for all kinds of reasons but it's for his purposes but we have to be careful we don't put on him what we might want him to be uh we have to remain consistent with the scripture but again let me read to you what there's a guy named alvin plantinga i don't know if he's still around he used to be the head of the philosophy department at the University of Notre Dame. He's a Christian. He's really, really smart. Uh, if you ever read his stuff, you might be able to understand about half. That's the best I can do. I mean, the guy is just, I can't follow some of this stuff. And there's other people who just kind of follow right along and say, yeah, this guy's brilliant. I go, well, okay, he's brilliant. But this is what he said. He said it would be easy to see God as remote and detached, permitting all these evils, himself untouched, in order to achieve ends that are no doubt exalted, above, exalted but have little to do with us, and little power to assuage our grief. It would be easy to see him as cold and unfeeling, or if loving, then such that his love for us has little to do with our perception of our own welfare. But God, as Christians see him, is neither remote nor detached. His aims and goals may be beyond our, our keen our, our our keen senses and may require our suffering but he is himself prepared to accept much greater suffering in the pursuit of those ends so the point he makes at the end which i think is also important 
is that not only has God entered into our suffering and suffered on our behalf, is he suffered to a greater degree than, all of, than any of us ever will. Um, and so that's, that's pretty amazing. So we will deal with the fourth claim next week because there's just no time to be able to deal with it. So if you don't mind holding on to these handouts, um, I'll print a few more up, but I'm not going to add anything to them uh, as we move on to the fourth claim uh, here that's being made, which is that the God of the Bible is immoral, therefore he cannot exist. We'll deal with that and then continue to move on through the study. Um, but I hope this helps you to realize that there are very tough issues uh, that people deal with when it comes to God and Christianity, that there really are answers, uh, that a lot of these objections, maybe most of these objections really don't hold any water. Uh, doesn't mean that they don't deserve thoughtful responses, because they do. Because again, there are people who do have these very honestly and truthfully. But at the same time, uh, there's many brilliant Christians that have lived through the years who have been, because none of these are new things. These, these objections and this kind of thinking have been around really for a couple hundred years. And Christians have been wrestling with these issues uh, for a while and, and have worked through that there really are answers, very real substantive answers uh, to these issues. And so we can, again, we can continue to have great confidence in the God of the Bible uh, and that there is no unjust suffering or senseless suffering that takes place. Uh, that God is still on our side, that he can be depended upon and trusted, uh, and that the answers are truly there. And that Christianity is not undermined or weakened in any way. Uh, the position of the screaming, incoherent agnostic is undermined uh, because they're not really being intellectually honest with themselves or with others when they you know, try to throw these barbs out uh, to undermine Christianity. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your grace and your love and your kindness. We thank you, Lord, for many of the believers that have preceded us in life that have wrestled with these issues for thousands of hours and have studied your word uh, extremely deeply in searching out all that your word has to say in enabling us to better understand what the answers are, that there are answers to some of these very perplexing questions and that our confidence is rightly placed because we've placed it in you. We know, Lord, that you're not afraid of these issues, you're not afraid of the questions. Uh, and Father, we are grateful for that. And so Father, we ask that you will enable us again to rethink uh, maybe some of these things or to ponder them, uh, to once again look at your word, maybe uh, from a different vantage point that will strengthen our faith and encourage us, Father, to continue to move forward and also realize that regardless of what we are going through, because, Father, we know that we go through pain and suffering, and we have some friends who may go through even greater pain and suffering, uh, that there is great comfort that can be found, and that you're not aloof, but that you are very, not only in touch with what's going on with us, but, Father, you have entered into our lives, uh, and you have a, a firsthand knowledge, as it were, of what's happening, and your comfort is very real. So we thank you, Father, so much for that. And we ask for your guidance throughout this week. And we do ask these, ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.